The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. How are you? No, I mean it, really. How are you? Today's guest, Poppy Jaman, OBE, will tell us how she taught a bunch of high-priced lawyers to revolutionize their leadership style simply by asking that question in a different way. Poppy is so thoughtful and so much fun. It's because she understands what makes her stressed and she takes her self-care seriously. It's also because she is deeply mission-driven, but she's learned to manage her boundaries and have fun along the way. I wanted to explore the ways mission-driven work can create specific emotional challenges with Poppy and ask what it's like to devote your career to mission-driven work while caring for your mental health. The pressure to succeed in our careers affects so many of us and can contribute to anxiety. We work long hours to eventually win awards, get promotions, make more money, or become a recognized expert or well-known force in our industry. But of course, we work so hard for something deeper, to accomplish our mission. And nowhere is that more clear than in the nonprofit world, a place where success may not always come with all the accolades and bonuses, and success may not even come at all if the problems you're tackling are just too complicated for one person or one organization to fix. Poppy Jaman, OBE, this means the Queen honored her, was the founding CEO of Mental Health First Aid England. She's now program director for the City Mental Health Alliance, a network of thought leaders from the City of London-based organizations committed to improving and raising awareness of mental health in the workplace. And she's been fighting for much of her career to increase awareness in the space. So, Poppy, tell us a little bit about the organization that you run now. So I'm the chief executive of a social enterprise called the City Mental Health Alliance. We're in three countries and our vision is to create mentally healthy workplaces and inspire health creation. And that last bit is the most important bit to me, which is, you know, how do we ensure that workplaces are, are healthy places, are places where we come to um, to feel great about ourselves? One of the things I love about your approach, Poppy, is that you do frame mental health from a positive perspective. I actually, I had a quote. You said, I'm not mentally unwell anymore, but I want to maintain positive mental health and I want to prevent myself becoming unwell again. And we'll talk a little bit about your preventative routine later, but I love the idea of walking into work to feel good. I also mm. find it a little bit fanciful. Um, mm. given, you know, the places I've worked. So what does a mentally healthy office look like? For me, it's a culture. Mm. So 
it's a culture where you are able to bring your whole self to work. Often when we go to work, and I think we've all been in, most of us, I think, would have had experiences of being in jobs where you walk in through the front door, leaving a part of yourself at the front door. And sometimes that's appropriate. But quite a lot of the time, the part that we leave behind is something that we're embarrassed of or ashamed of, or actually isn't going to fit into that culture. So it's better to suppress it, hide it, and not bring it to the fore. And I just feel that when you're segmenting yourself in that way and actually work is a significant part of most of our lives we will spend more time at work than we will at home creating a culture where all of us can be our whole selves if we choose to in the workplace is really important but where's the line i mean here's where the rubber meets the road for me of course we want to bring our whole selves to work but to me, that's taken on almost like a stock phrase status because there is a line, right? You need boundaries at work, especially yeah. if you're in a position of authority or you're trying to make it at work. Nobody wants to be a mess. <laughs> so where, because sometimes our whole selves are messy. They're really yeah. messy. What's the line? I, what I'm not saying is that you should be coming to work and being best mates with every single person because that's just not <laughs> that's just not possible. Or crying, you know, we, you know if you're a yeah. crier like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're, and you know, so let me give you an example of what it is about. You know, I'm from a British Bangladeshi Muslim culture um, family background, and you know, being married more than once in my community is a huge stigma and I'm on my third marriage so actually I've been in places and particularly in family settings and you know community settings and weddings where I've I've hidden that part of me and you know I've got kids from two different marriages and actually that and and the reason why I'm expected to hide that in those scenarios is that there's shame attached to that. As a woman, I should be feeling ashamed for the different sexual partners, the different relationships I've been in. So in certain circumstances, I am expected to hide that. And actually, as I've got older, I've chosen to hide that to protect, I don't know, maybe older family members. But when I was a younger per younger woman, that was definitely something that I was made to feel ashamed of. And actually, it was one of the things that contributed to my mental health issues. Mm. It's the whole point of stigma, isn't it? So if depression, anxiety, which are common human experiences, one in four of us are going to experience a common mental health issue. And post this pandemic, I would imagine that one in one of us will have struggled mm. with our mental health issues over the next year. So if we have that as the data and the statistics, should we really be feeling ashamed of being poorly? And should mental health issues be associated with weakness so that we can't be in our body with our experiences because we're at work? Because, because the consequence of that is that we don't come to work. We avoid places that is going to make us feel uncomfortable, which in itself has a huge detrimental effect. How do you manage employee reviews, end-of-year reviews, disciplinary or sort of 
coaching issues with staff, what advice can you give listeners about how to lead with empathy with the goal of creating that mentally healthy workplace? I think there's two things I want to I want to say on that. Um, and the first thing is I would use the word um, compassion more than empathy more because mm. empathy is almost implies that you you carry something for somebody else, don't you? Fair so enough. I empathize, and also that you um, might be codependent, which of course I am because yeah. I take on everyone's pain. But yes, many of us. <laughs> yes, exactly. Good, very good point. <laughs> exactly. So I think I I've I've learned that actually instead of empathy, let's apply compassion. In our to your question look when I was when I set up mental health first aid and we'd started getting bigger and I had I so I one of the things that I put in which is you know common to most many organizations is one-to-ones with your line manager so every month everybody had to have a one-to-one with their line manager but traditionally those one-to-ones are set up for you know what's your what's your let's talk about your job like your work and your targets and your projects but the the, the first question I put in on the one-to-ones was how are you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and um and um and it's it's fascinating because uh, and and when i asked colleagues that so when new employees were coming on and they'd never had that experience of being asked how are you in your one to one and it was just a structure that it was standard across the organization Initially, it used to really throw people. People were a bit like, well, you know, I'm fine. And I'm like, no, no, no. So I really want to, because there's no point me, us discussing your projects and your targets and the business objectives if you're not in a great place because, or, you know, a good place, because we're not, we're just not going to get the best. You're not going to be able to do the best that you want to do. So so that was my very practical way of applying that. When I started working with city firms, and this was probably, let me think, about seven years ago, I was in a meeting and there was a number of law firms and professional services sector, uh, you know, the corporates in the, in the room, and we were discussing one-to-ones. And I, I shared exactly what I've just shared with you. And you could literally, like the breath got taken out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> And I, and I, and I, and I didn't realize why. And I said, you know, is that wrong? Is that like, what, what is, what's the problem here? And when we explored it, someone eventually went, can you imagine in a law firm, you know, a partner asking their team members, how are you? There'd be, there'd be litigation. There'd be like all these signs of what if, what are we going to do if they say that they're suicidal or, you know, <laughs> and, and is that by asking, how are you? Are we actually making ourselves um, are we then responsible? Do you know what I mean? Like and it was liability, just, was like, yeah. what liability? Yeah. And I was like, wow, you guys, like, we're just, this is just a human conversation. But what's really interesting is, um, five, six years on, two of those same organizations have implemented a different performance management system. And the one to one, the number one question is, how are you? You know, I did I did read on your Wikipedia page and it says that as a child you wanted to become an electrical engineer. Now you're not an electronics engineer. Um what happened? How did you become involved in mental health? Oh, do you know, so I, you know, I grew up in a very a very working class. My 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 you know, my granddad came to Portsmouth when he was in a young man and then my dad joined him when my when he was only a child and my mum and I joined my dad in in the UK when I was a baby. So I grew up 
um, raised by uh, a couple who were struggling themselves. You know, they didn't have a big community around them. My mom's first language definitely was not English. My dad was working around the clock to make ends meet here and support his family back home. So we we grew up in, and and then it was in the you know in the eighties when racism was really high and I grew up in Portsmouth a city known for you know rating high as its racial racism incidences so it was it was a difficult upbringing and then there was this you know me in my teens very ambitious I wanted to travel the world I didn't want to have children and I wanted to work in engineering which was a male dominated um you know and still is very much male dominated industry and I think that was probably in my youth I you know I and I was I was an excellent science student so I think all of those things just led me to feel like I wanted to not be in the life that I had grown up in I had visions of not being in in that town and not being in my family settings but I also knew that an arranged marriage was was you know the way that 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 my life was going to happen because there was no other cultural framework within my family just before I started college um yeah, I wasn't behaving in the way that my parents wanted me to behave. So I was taken to Bangladesh and I was um, forced to marry. How old were you? I was 17 at the time. So I did that marriage for about seven or eight years. But that's where the engineering dream went out of the window. Because actually, once married, there was no opportunity for education and actually I think by that time my mental health issues were already there so I don't think I was in a place to completely engage with life in the way that I had prior. So then what happened was I had my first daughter and when after I had her actually that's when I got my diagnosis of postnatal depression but if you listen to my story it probably started long before then. You know here I was in my I think I was 20 with a baby, with depression, in a marriage that I didn't want to be in. And, you know, it wasn't a a violent marriage. It was just a marriage. It was just that I'd never chosen him and he hadn't chosen me. And here we were, two people with a baby trying to trying to make it work and and we had as time went on the lesson we had in common um so then depression hit and actually that's when I realized that um how little services education was there for people that were going through mental health difficulties and everything felt quite scary because I had no idea what was happening to me I had you know, my my family were trying to work out what was going on. There was no mental health literacy in 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 culturally accessible language context, etc. When I started uh, therapy, the therapist didn't really understand the cultural nuances that I was mm. going through. I didn't understand what was going on. So, what was brilliant was I decided that I was going to get a job. And that was going to be the thing that helped me get routine, get financial health, um, be independent financially. And um, actually, it was the best decision I made because it wasn't medication or therapeutic services that supported me. It was going to a place of work that gave me meaning and purpose and identity and financial health. 
That's so interesting. Maybe that explains your affinity for focusing on the workplace, right? Because the work saved you in a way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you absolutely. And you know, like I've only recently made those connections because mm. you know when you sort of go through it and you think, well, you know, how did this journey of workplace? Why is it such a? And I think it is. It is that it was meaningful, having meaning and purpose in the form of work. Absolutely saved me, Maura. What did your depression? I mean, I know it was a while ago, but. What did it feel like to have postnatal depression? What what did you feel when you woke up in the morning? Do you remember? Yeah, well, I you know, so you um, actually in, that was the first incident. Mm. So since then, I have peri- I periodically have um, flares that of depression, um, more depression than anxiety. The way that I feel when I get depressed um, is that I stop eating. Uh, and I just lose my appetite. And I think I find it difficult to swallow. So something happens to my voice, which essentially means that um, and my throat. So I start to close in, I think. And I think the emotional closing in represents itself in not being able to eat, um, not being able to swallow. So that's definitely a sign for me. I lose my appetite. I lose sleep. So I start to, you know, stay up later and later and wake up even earlier. I get very irritable. So I get quite micromanaging. So I recognize that when I'm working with my colleagues, you know, at the moment, I'm like, yeah, great. You know, just let me know what you're doing. Whereas when I'm when I'm in that space, I'll be sending two or three emails. I'll be calling people going, you know, when's that document? So, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll micromanage, which I think is a really important to notice, bearing in mind I'm an ambassador for mental health in the workplace. If, I, <laughs> if I'm actually leading a team and people are feeling pressured by me and it's not it's not me in my authentic place. It's me unwell. You know, I get locked jaw, so I, I start to um, get jaw ache. So my symptoms are physical, emotional, behavioural, and um, and I think when I was in the when I was in the darkest place, I just had no hope, Maura. So I couldn't see what the purpose of each day was. Um, and actually, if I didn't have a baby, I don't know that I would have bothered to get up so the fact that I had responsibility for a young child um, really really helped me get up and 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 do something because I had I had a role to play but I felt no emotional connection and that was really hard when you've got when you're a new mother and everybody around you is looking like so loved up and so (laughs) so and you're sort of looking at this beautiful human being and not not feeling anything it's such it's I just felt numb why do you think that people find the combination of mental health and workplace so scary there's so many I think there's lots of different reasons so one of them is that there is this idea that if you have a mental health issue, then you are somehow weak. That, and with that comes judgment, doesn't it? So if you're a high profile CEO in a top bank, you're expected to be all the characteristics that we associate with that. But we don't associate weakness with that. We don't associate incompetence or lack of productivity with that. 
And when we talk about mental health issues, the images that conjure up in our minds because of the way society has set us up is someone that is not worthy, that someone's not capable. And it's far, far from the truth. Right. And what's what's amazing to me is when you were talking about how you felt faking it around the baby Mm. is how many leaders I've spoken to, and I've experienced this myself, who are in their dream job, (laughs) quote, and yet feel every day like they're faking it, like they are putting on a face about, quote, being a leader and yet come home and feel so empty inside. I want to ask you, Poppy, while I've got you, I mean, readers, 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 listeners have come in asking (laughs) about what it's like to have anxiety or depression or struggle with your mental health when you work in a in a caring field or when you work in mission-driven work, you know, either at a not-for-profit organization or you're a carer mm-hmm. or caregiver. I'd love to drill down a little bit because you have such a unique vantage point of being a professional workplace observer, but also having run many social mission organizations. How you address mentally healthy work differently when it's a nonprofit organization or a mission-driven organization? And are there certain pitfalls that people should think about when they're leading those organizations? Yes, I mean, absolutely. And I think when you look at um, our NHS, for example, and when you look at the data of the people in the care industry that are experiencing a common mental health issue, but often will not go and seek support and it's not about the shame or it's about this idea that you should be extra strong because you're designed to do this job (laughs) so there's almost this kind of you know I'm the doctor I'm the nurse I'm the caregiver I'm you know this is my job and I cannot so the self-judgment that comes with that and the self-standards that come with that so is 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 really interesting. So I think that people that are in the sector that you just described, it, that there's a there's a slightly different risk, which is to do with it, you you give so much of yourself, <laughs> and it's not just work; it's your life, and you have this carry this. In enormous responsibility that you only you've given it to yourself it's you know it's completely self-indulgent on some level <laughs> you've decided that you're on this mission you're going to solve this the world this world problem and and it's not work you're going to live your life trying to achieve it so where is the break in that then you know, when do you have friendship time when do you have social time and I've been very conscious of that so my work has you know revolved in my, my first big career was race equality and mental health then I created mental health first aid and it's a social enterprise and now city mental health alliance and then underneath that there's been voluntary roles and there's always a mission mm-hmm. in, in my life I don't know how else to be Maura so I guess there'll always be a mission it's just who I am but when I hang out with my mates, we don't talk about work. And often my friends are also my colleagues, because actually when you're living a work that life that's so mission driven, all the people that you meet are people that you want to hang on to. So they, you, I've got a big network of friends. But when we're on holiday time, when we're, when we're on social time, we just we've naturally all evolved to protect our private time for no work conversations, no solving the world 
conversations. No, none of that. It's just about fun. Um, when I'm with my kids um, and my family, I very rarely talk about work, you know, to, to the point that they're a bit like, oh, we saw you on that radio interview or we saw you on TV, <laughs> weren't you going to tell us? Bit like, when were you going to tell us? But those are my boundaries because I really want to be able to just hang out with my kids and just be mum. It's one of the things that I learned early on is, is how do I ensure that my whole life isn't a mission? The mission. Actually, which relationships are, are protected and my marriage is protected and my um, kids' relationships are protected and my best friend's relationships are protected. And when I go to the pub and things like that, you know, where in the evenings, I will, I just will not engage in work conversation. And people find that quite frustrating. But after a couple of occasions, they work out that there's no point going there. I'm Kwame Christian, and I am the CEO of the American Negotiation Institute, and I want you to check out my podcast, Negotiate Real Change. Listen to conversations with leaders in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, and learn the secrets behind what it really takes to become a successful advocate, ally, and change maker in your organization. Check out Negotiate Real Change on your favorite podcast player. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. It's funny because I I think sometimes also... um, it's different if you're a, if you're a sort of direct clinical caregiver, but many people who like you have worked at large nonprofit organizations that are very mission driven. I find um, have created almost a persona for themselves. They, they will say to themselves, "Well, I've I've given up." money maybe that I could have earned mm. if I were in the private sector, you know, mm. I've, I've made this choice to live this life. And this is who I am. And therefore, um, I must be mentally strong as well. Um, like almost like there's a, mm. there's a persona that they build around themselves um, for living the mission. Yes. Yeah, so the way I, I looked at that was as a single parent for, um, when the girls were young, uh, for most of being on my third marriage, you know, the first two, single parenting was a big part of um, my parenting um, experience. And I remember thinking, actually, uh, and I I didn't want to fall into the trap of um, being um, taking part time, reducing my hours at work. Mm. And then still doing the the full-time job and not getting paid enough. So, you know, we know all the issues around gender pay gap in society. And I didn't want to, well, I couldn't afford to. I had two two children and I I wanted them to not be having the same experience that that I had had um, growing up in a very poor family. So actually, it was really important to me to be financially healthy. And so for me, the way I looked at that was, you know, I have thrown my whole self into my work and my mission and that's very fulfilling but it came at the expense of time with my children Mm. and um, it came at the expense of missing out on 
um, lots of, you know, I see my, my sister-in-laws at the moment spending time with their little ones and I think, God, I don't even remember that <laughs> bit with the girls. And I feel really guilty. Like the girls sometimes say to me, did we do this? And I, and I think, goodness, I, I don't remember because I wasn't present for quite a lot of those early days and I was battling with my mental health issues so I was surviving and, you know, and the girls have got, don't get me wrong, a very lovely um, narrative of their childhood. So they've got that, you know, we did all the things that you do. But the way I look at it is how dare I, I when I get unwell, I get very angry, I, you know, and I get, you know, how dare I be ill or how dare I not achieve or how dare this project don't, has, doesn't go well because it came at the expense of being a mom. So what are your what are your tips, I, you, you know, especially for people listening who, you know, in this world where many people are experiencing acute and active anxiety for the first time all day long? How do you keep yourself mentally well? You know, so I, particularly in this current climate, I, I will ask myself, I genuinely ask myself, how I am. Mm. It was one of the tricks that I learned in coaching, which was check in on yourself, ask yourself how, how you are, answer the question honestly. So, you know, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling ecstatic, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling frustrated. And if the, if you can't answer it, because that's the other thing that happens to me more is I get mind blocked, like I can't think, mm. which is which is just, you know, so I I don't I don't know how to access my feelings. <laughs> Sometimes it can take quite a few minutes to get to the bottom of how I am. Um and um so name the feeling and if if I'm comfortable, I share that with usually my husband, but most of the time I just write it down and then I close that that the notebook and I leave that and I get on with my day. So listening being a form of acceptance, which is really liberating. It's it's just a version of that. It's just practicing that on yourself. So listening to how I'm feeling without the need to change it, without the need to judge it, just accept and acknowledge it by writing it down. So that's one of the things that I do fairly regularly. And I do it to maintain my positive mental health, not to counter the fact that, you know, counter me getting unwell, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's actually a good practice to keep me just checking. And and it's lovely to write down. I feel really happy. I feel really chuffed that I finished whatever it is that I finished because we don't often celebrate ourselves either. So true. So that's one of the things I do. The other thing that I do is um, I have a wellbeing toolkit. So, I described to you earlier what 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 my how stress mental health uh, issues present themselves. You know, sleep, eating, um, irritability. So I know what my signs are, but I don't just reel those off. I know those because I've written them down. <laughs> and then on the flip side of the same page, I would I I have a well being toolkit, and this is the things to create another list on the days that you feel great Mm. just jot down the things that make you feel great and for me it's things like having a chat with one of my best friends about nothing in particular you know going out for a run is always great um swimming um 
kind of just hanging out and winding my kids up is quite fun. Just, you know, teasing and playing silly game, being childish um, and playful. That side of my character is only really with, with the girls. So I love that time. So things that make you, and that's, that's so two sides of the same page. One side is your, is your stress signature. One side is your wellbeing toolkit. And different days, so when I'm, so then the check-in that I talked about, you know, checking in, how am I? If I if I notice that actually for three check-ins in a row, for example, um, my mood has been low or it's been a negative feeling, then I will go straight to my well-being toolkit and do one of the things that takes my fancy. The great thing about that approach is it takes out the decision-making process. Mm. Like I don't have to sit and work out what I've got to do. Because that in itself, when you've got a mental health issue, you you lose some of your decision making abilities yes. as well. And you're an unreliable narrator sometimes yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and that I have found really, and it's almost ingrained in me. I don't have to look at my piece of paper anymore. It's almost like I know now what it is because it's so well practiced. Um, but that's what that would I you know it's my unique way of taking care of my and maintaining my my mental wellness yeah well Poppy thank you so much I wish you good health and lots of fun yeah thank you and same to you Maura it's been really lovely chatting that's it for this week's show If you like what you've heard, tell a friend or rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a question or a topic that you'd like to see featured on the show, you can email anxiousachiever at gmail.com or tweet me at Mora A.M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Many thanks to Mary Dew, my amazing producer and the team at Harvard Business Review. And of course, to our advertisers who keep us going and my guests. And if you like the Anxious Achiever music, it's by Brian Campbell at Signal Sounds NYC. From HBR Presents, this is the Anxious Achiever, and I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy. <laughs>